That's a very familiar passage. Uh, we often hear that read almost every Christmas. And one of the blessings of being a pastor and preparing sermons is that I get to study a little bit more in depth when I'm talking about something like Christmas. And so I've read some different books and I've looked at some different um, podcasts and different things like that. One of them I want to mention to you is Wrestling with Wonder by Marlo Shaleski. She wrote a wonderful book on the story of Mary and some of her ideas and things I used last week and also this week. And also there's a sermon I read by John Ortberg on recognizing divine intervention. And so they helped me to understand a little bit more and so that I can share with you some of the things that I discovered about the Christmas story and especially about Joseph. Joseph doesn't get a lot of press. Mary usually gets most of the press in the Christmas story, right? But Joseph doesn't get as much. But Joseph played such an important part in this miracle of Christmas. Think about them. This young couple, in the midst of an invitation by God to play a major role in bringing Jesus into the world. We know how the story ends. But be aware of what they were feeling in the midst of what God is asking them to do. Because a lot of times we look at the end story of Christmas, we know the story. We know Jesus is born. That's it. But we don't realize what was happening in the midst of all that was going on in their lives. Last week we learned that Mary's invitation was to join God and depend upon the Holy Spirit to give her a child. Never happened before. Never happened again. But Mary was used dramatically to be used to bring Jesus into the world. And what I want us to see today is though, although Mary and Joseph are used in a powerful way, you and I are also invited to bring Jesus into the world of our friends, of our family, of our co-workers, of our classmates, of people that we see. We have the same invitation to receive Jesus Christ into our lives through the power of the Holy Spirit, and then to share him with everybody that we know. He's given us that invitation, and it's a wonderful invitation. But it comes through the mercy and the grace and the power of God. Now, what Mary and Joseph had was this dilemma. And a lot of times we talked about uh, what dilemma is. Dilemma is really having to decide about laying down my own life and my own wishes in order to do God's work. And that's the d- dilemma that they were in. We don't have the, sometimes the same dilemma as Mary and Joseph. But even last week, you know, we went uh, to the uh, Huntington Hills nursing home. And so my grandson, who is 12, was having a dilemma. He saw everybody playing basketball on the back court. And I remember right before we left, he goes, Grandpa, can I just stay here? I don't really feel like singing. That's not my thing. You know, I, I really would like to just stay here. I say, no, you're coming with me. <laughs> there was no dilemma anymore. We weren't going to leave him here alone, so he came with us. And we went to the nursing home. We sang Christmas carols. Many of you were there. On the way home, I asked him. I said, so, Justin, what did you think about Christmas caroling at the nursing home? And he said this. He said, Grandpa, I feel so good inside. It's like we gave a gift to old people today. They really liked it. 
but I think I feel better than they do. It's like when I give a gift to a person and they really like it. It makes me feel so good inside. And I said, wow, you really got it. He really got the idea of Christmas. But he went through a dilemma. Here we go. Let's see number one again. A dilemma is a situation when a difficult choice has to be made between two or more alternatives. Mary made the choice to surrender to God's plan for her life despite the possibility of the shame, the ridicule, the possibility of suffering and even life-threatening circumstances surrounding her birth. She went forward and did what God had called her to. Uh, Second slide. Mary said, Behold, I'm the servant of the Lord. May it be done to me according to your word. We also learned last week that Mary is making the decision of her life to follow God's will, to do what God has called her to do. And she's doing it willingly. She's saying, look it, I'm the Lord's servant. Lord, whatever you want to do according to your will, I will do it. What about Joseph? Where is Joseph in this situation? Joseph is engaged to be married to Mary. And so this takes a year-long process, but he's expecting that his wife, is, he is going to have a child with her, and yet she goes three months away to her cousin Elizabeth's house, and then she comes back three months pregnant, and then Joseph sees her. He noticed there's something different. He's in a dilemma now. What is he going to do? And so it says in Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 and 19, this is how the birth of Jesus, the Messiah, came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. That's a dilemma. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law, it says in the NIV, the latest translation, or a righteous man, it says in other translations, and yet he did not want to expose her to public disgrace. He had in mind to divorce her quietly. So this is the dilemma. Joseph is in the situation that he is a righteous man. He's faithful to the law, and so he does whatever the law tells him to do. And so he studied the Torah. He's probably memorized the first four books of the Bible at the, by the time he's 12 or 13 years of age. And so he is known as a righteous man. But this, he's in this dilemma. What does he do? He takes courage. Courage is a mental or moral strength to venture, persevere, withstand danger, fear, or difficulty. Joseph had what I called courageous righteousness. It was different than the righteousness that they described in verse 19 of Matthew chapter 1. A person could follow the laws of God based on what the community did, like go to the temple three times a year, do different things like that. But for Joseph, he shows a different type of righteousness. He's starting to battle with this idea of, what am I going to do? He's pondering. He's not sure what he should do. And so he's thinking. The Hebrew word for righteousness is a word that's pronounced sadak. Can you say that? I can't hear you. Sadak. 
Uh, now you know some Hebrew. Say Sadak. <laughs> yeah, Sadak. Sadak is a Hebrew word. It means to be righteous, just, lawful, honest. And for Joseph, Sadak righteousness meant this. Joseph did not un- eat unclean food. He didn't mix with the wrong kinds of people. He didn't keep his carpentry shop open on the Sabbath to make a few extra drachmas. He visited Jerusalem three times a year to worship in the temple on his most special holy days. He prayed three times a day, wore the scripture around his neck like a good Hebrew would, a philactrophy. He would wear it around him and carry it with him. He would memorize it. He didn't cut his beard or sideburns. He obeyed the Torah on marriage, divorce, and adultery. He would keep the law. He was faithful to the law. He was a Sadak person. And that's kind of like a businessman in our day would want to be called the CEO of a company. If you're the CEO of a company, you have a title, right? If you're a good athlete and you go to... uh, uh, a good school, and then you get drafted into a professional sport, you have made it your professional athlete. In Israelite, in the first century, their goal was to be called, if you were a young man, your goal is to be called a righteous man. You are somebody that follows the law so well that people recognize you and they speak about you. Oh, Joseph, he's Sadak. He is a righteous man. Joseph is Sadak. Sadak. <laughs> oh, yeah. That's, my, that's the only language I know besides English. David Silvius comments on the first century what it was to be Sadak. And he talks about an honor and shame culture. He says, honor refers to the public acknowledgement of a person's worth granted on the basis of how fully that individual embodies qualities and behaviors valued by the group. And Joseph had this. First century Mediterranean people were orientated from early childhood to seek honor and avoid disgrace, meaning that they would be sensitive to public recognition or reproach. So Joseph is living in this honor and shame culture And he knows to have to be engaged, to be pledged to be married to this woman and find her to be pregnant, that is a total disgrace. He will no longer be called Sadak. Mary would not even be in that category. And so this is the dilemma that Joseph is having. He's wondering, what should I do? And a lot of times we don't really think about that when we think about the, Christ, uh, the Christmas story or we think about Joseph. But put yourself in Joseph's place for a moment. John Artborg says this, Your fiancé is pregnant and your whole reputation and identity revolve around one thing, your commitment to the Torah. What the Torah says you do, that's who you are. The Torah made some clear instructions about what to do when somebody in, with Mary's condition... A section in Deuteronomy 22 covers marriage violation. If a woman pledged to be married is unfaithful, it says, she shall be brought to the door of her father's house, and there the men of her town shall stone her to death. She has done a disgraceful thing in Israel by being promiscuous while still in her father's house. You must purge this evil from among you. 
We don't know what Joseph thought, everything that he thought. But we do know that Joseph was a righteous man. And he didn't want to cause a scandal. So the Bible says he couldn't really bring himself to do that to Mary. So he thought, I'll quietly divorce him. That's another option that you could have is quietly divorce your wife. It doesn't really say quietly to do it, but Joseph thought of that. You could take three elders with you and establish that the marriage is over. And you're divorcing that woman. Now, that woman would forever have a bad reputation. She would never be able to be married again in that community. They would ostracize her. They would never look at her the same way. I wonder how the conversation went with Joseph and Mary. I wish I could have been a fly on the wall and listened when Mary comes back from being with Elizabeth and she's starting to show And Joseph sees her for the first time. They're back together. And Mary says, you know, I've got some good news and I've got some bad news. The bad news is I'm pregnant. The good news is it's from the Holy Spirit. And I've conceived by the Holy Spirit, I'm carrying the Messiah inside of me. And the angel promised me that his name is going to be Jesus. He's going to be great. He's going to save us from our sins. Can you imagine Joseph listening to this for the first time? He's wondering, that poor girl, there's something wrong with her. And what is Joseph going to do now? Is he going to be a righteous man and do the right thing? Which would mean to divorce her? to scandalize her. And Joseph agonizes over what to do for weeks. Maybe it's even months. We're not told. But the scripture says in Matthew 1, 20 to 21, but after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son and you are to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. And the question I have today is, why didn't God just tell him that right in the beginning? Why didn't the angel appear to Joseph three months earlier, right after he appeared to Mary? Why does Joseph have to wait and agonize for three or four months Wondering what is going on. What should he do? Why couldn't the angel have just come to him ahead of time and just told him this is the plan? You know, it reminds me a lot about the things that we go through in our lives. Things that we're facing in our lives. The difficulties that we're facing. And sometimes we don't know what we should do or when we should do it. Anybody ever been through that? Yeah, we all have. Why doesn't God just tell us right then? Why do we have to agonize about it? Why do we have to go back and forth? Should I go to this doctor? Should I go to that doctor? Uh, why, Why do I have to wonder where I'm going to get into school or where I'm going to get my next job or what if this happens? And I think God is concerned 
about our souls more than he's concerned about our anxiety. Now, Joseph didn't do anything wrong, but he still went through some anxiety and some difficulty. Is it possible that anxiety removal or peer acceptance is not God's number one goal for Joseph? Or maybe even you and me? Could it be that the removal of our anxiety is not what God's after, but he's after us to struggle with that, with him, and to find him to be Emmanuel, the God who is with us in everything that we go through. Why does Joseph have to face the peer pressure of when he does say, okay, I'm going to marry her, and everybody in town knows it's not your child? Why? Instead of people looking at Joseph in the eye and saying, Sadak, a righteous man. Now they don't even look at him. And so Joseph is faced with rejection. Joseph is faced with all of his life, this scandal that is going on in the town of Nazareth. A town maybe of only three or four hundred people. A town that's only the size of a football field. And so why God is so marvelous when he does things so powerfully, but so tenderly and small, begins in small ways. It says, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet, the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they'll call him God with us. They'll call him God with us. And really, that is really the message of Christmas, is that God is with us. In whatever difficulty we are going through, whatever suffering we have to face, whatever difficult circumstances. You know, it doesn't end there for Joseph and Mary. We know the story goes on. They end up in Bethlehem. They take that 90 to 100 mile journey at nine months pregnant, which is totally uncomfortable, I would expect. I've never been pregnant, but some of you ladies have. And you don't want to be riding a donkey for 90 miles over a week-long period when in your ninth month of pregnancy and you're about to give birth and the day you land in Jerusalem, boom, it's time. Not only that, they're there and then God appears to the shepherds. He doesn't appear to them right then. There's no place for them to stay. But the shepherds come in and they said, we saw angels and they told us to come here. And they said, we would find a child lying in a manger. (laughs) It's exactly what they said. So Joseph and Mary, they ponder these things. Say, God, why didn't you tell us this? Maybe they're thinking, God, why are you showing shepherds and not us? And then about a year and a half later, some historians think, Joseph and Mary settle in Bethlehem. They finally move out of the barn, and then they find probably a place to live. 
and they're setting up their home, and maybe Joseph has started his carpentry business again, and things are going well, and then all of a sudden three, uh, we don't know how many wise men, tradition says three, but there could have been several more, but they bring three major gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh, and they come down and they said, we saw his star. There's a star that has appeared, and we've come from the east, and we've come all the way here, and we've come to worship this child. He is a special child. It's prophesied in the Bible, too. Born in Bethlehem. And so Joseph and Mary, they think this is fantastic. And then the, they come back and they say, you know, Herod has said that he wants to kill the child. And Joseph goes to sleep that night. He has a dream. Yes, take the child and move to Egypt now in the middle of the night. And so they have to go on another 100-mile journey into Egypt and stay there for I don't know how long. The Bible doesn't say. It could have been a couple years. But he's God with us. Do you know sometimes in our lives there's so many twists and turns and things don't seem to make sense at that moment. I'm sure that was true for Joseph and Mary. And I'm sure that's true for you and I. But the Bible says that God is with us. Now, you would think being raised up by Joseph and Mary, Jesus, you know, God picks the perfect parents. Why? Because you think about Joseph and Mary. They've been through so much already. They've been through ridicule, rejection. So after Herod dies, they come back. And most Bible historians think it's a couple years. They come back. And they go back to Nazareth, to their hometown, where everybody knows that this isn't Joseph's son. And so they come back there. And you would think, well, maybe the scandal is over. Everybody's forgotten about it. Nobody even thinks about it anymore. Nobody, everybody's going to call Joseph Sadak again. But it doesn't seem like that. Because when you look in Mark chapter 6, verses 1 through 3, it says something this. It says, Jesus left there. And this is after Jesus is 30 years old now. It's been a long time. The last we heard of Joseph was when Jesus was 12 years old. After that, there's no biblical record of Joseph ever appearing in the Bible. So most Bible scholars think that Joseph died sometime between 12 and 30 uh, years of Jesus' age. So Jesus had him as a father for at least 12 years, maybe longer. But the influence that Joseph had on his life to be courageous and a new type of righteousness that showed compassion instead of just keeping the law. It was a righteousness that far exceeded what just keeping a law meant. It meant compassion. It meant acting in mercy and grace towards other people. And that's how Jesus lived his life. Jesus left there and went to his hometown accompanied by his disciples. When the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were amazed. This is in his own hometown, you know. So Jesus gets up and gives his first sermon. Where did the man get these things, they ask? What's this wisdom that's been given him? What are these remarkable miracles he's performing? Isn't this the carpenter? 
Isn't this Mary's son, the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon, aren't his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. Meaning, they were upset that Jesus, the son of Mary, that's another name for saying he's a son of a... They were taking an offense. They were naming Jesus as somebody that was illegitimate. And so he cannot be Sadak. Jesus cannot be a righteous man. He's born in sin, is what they're thinking. And you see, Jesus had this sensitivity to people that were involved in scandals. You think about it. When Jesus goes to the Samaritan woman who is not married, and she says, my husband, uh, i got to go get my husband. He goes, you don't have a husband. You've been married five times, and the man that you're living with now is not your husband. But if you would understand who's asking you for a drink right now, you would ask me, and I'd give you living water. See, Jesus was sensitive to people that struggled in life. And he still is today. You think in John chapter 8, and there's a story of a woman caught in the very act of adultery. And all the townspeople gather around, and they're ready to stone her. And then Jesus writes on the ground something. And he says, he who is without sin, let him cast the first stone. Jesus had compassionate, courageous righteousness. Same thing that he saw his father and his mother exemplify. They didn't care about what other people thought. They knew what God had said to them, and they held on to that, and they kept on walking in faith. It's the same calling you and I have. It's the same thing God wants us to do. Jesus... Why did he come down on wrong kinds of righteousness? In Matthew chapter 5, verse 20, he says, Unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus wasn't about keeping rules. He was about compassion and love and obeying what God had said. And he did it. God's call to courageous righteousness. What does God want us to do? One, first thing is open up your heart to Christ. How do I become a courageous, righteous person? It's not in us. We don't have that quality. The kind of quality that Jesus had, we have to ask Christ to come in to us through the power of the Holy Spirit and live his life through us, empowering us to do the right thing, to stand up for the, doing the right thing and for other people. Open up your heart to Christ. That's the first thing we have to do. We have to realize we don't have it in ourselves. We need to be born. Christ needs to be born in our hearts and then live in us. Two, be willing to bring Jesus with you. After that happens, be willing to bring Jesus with you in word and deed to others. That's, we're supposed to bring Jesus to other people. And three, remember 
in your fear, in your doubt and anxiety, he's still with us. He is God Emmanuel with us. So it doesn't mean, remember we talked about last week, blessedness. Blessedness does not mean you're going to be forever wealthy, healthy, and wise. That is not blessedness according to Jesus. Blessedness according to Jesus is that you're comforted when you mourn. That you're fed His love and His purpose when you're hungry. That when you're persecuted and forsaken, you'll sense joy in your life. That's what blessedness is. And so the, the, the last thing is, is be righteous, compassionate, and understanding to others who are misunderstood or scandalized. And that happens all the time. It can happen in school. It can happen on the job. Somebody says something about somebody. Somebody starts to say, you know, you want to hear a story about this person? And they label them. And it says, they're off limits. Can't talk to them. Better stay away from them. And it could be the very person or people that God wants you to reach out to. Be righteous. Be courageously righteous, righteous, compassionate, understanding to those who are misunderstood, scandalized, or disenfranchised, or oppressed. God wants us to bring them hope. Of Jesus. That's really what Christmas is about. That's what's in the story. That's what Joseph and Mary were about. Let's be about that too. Let's pray. Father God, we just come before you and we ask, Lord, today that you would give us a courageous righteousness something that Joseph exhibited, something that you exhibited, Lord Jesus, when you walked this earth. You were willing to give your very life up for us, to die on the cross so that we could be forgiven, to take our place. Lord, help us to lay down our lives, our wants, our desires, so that we can take up your ways, your will your purpose, your plans. We ask this in Jesus' name.